0: In this podcast, we focus on the relationship between God and Moses. We see how the friendship between the two allowed Moses to be open in his words and advocate for God restoring his relationship with Israel. Moses wanted to be clear on his responsibilities to God. He was somewhat confused and didn't want to be leading the nation without God's direct involvement. Finally, we see Moses' desire to grow not just in his fellowship with God, But with his knowledge and his understanding of him as well. We have used this passage to consider our own understanding and fellowship with God, desiring to grow in these areas just as Moses did. Just as an aside, the reason that you hear music going on in the background, and I don't mean in the introduction, during the beginning and towards the end of these podcasts is because the classroom we use is directly next to the sanctuary and the service tends to bleed over into the room a little bit. I hope you don't find this too distracting. And I hope you find this podcast a blessing. Welcome to Studies in Exodus. This series of podcasts is produced by for Audio Productions. These sessions were presented at Foothill Bible Church in Lincoln, California. The speaker is Pastor Jeff Crankin. Join us now as the class is about to start. So there's no power in this world like friendship. There's nothing you look upon in your life that has shaped you, made you, what you are today. So completely as the friendships, the friendships in which you have been living from your boyhood up. Now Christianity seems to simply be the perfection of this power of friendship. It seems to be simply the opening of the sky so that we can see above every other friendship, above everything that shapes our lives, there is the power of God made manifest in Jesus Christ, so that he who casts his life in utter and entire obedience to that of the great master enters into the character of that master more and more. Now All friendship, all love, human and divine, is spiritual, so that it's no different in reflecting the character of Christ that we have never been in visible contact with him. He does not appeal to the eye. He appeals to the soul and is not reflected from the body, but reflected from the soul. The thing you love in a friend is not the thing you see. I know of a very beautiful character, one of the loveliest which ever bloomed on this earth. It was the character of a young girl. She always wore about her neck a little locket, which nobody was allowed to open. None of her companions ever knew what it contained, until one day she was laid with a dangerous illness. When one of them was granted permission to look in the locket, she saw written there, Whom, having not seen, I love. That was the secret of her beautiful life. She had been changed into the same image. The first one was Philip Brooks. This one was Henry Drummond. And we're going to be talking this morning about... Moses, a friend of God. So last week, we started looking at chapter 33, and we continue, which was the context of the nation's involvement with the golden calf.
1: And while it
0: appears that the first part of the chapter that the nation had repented of their idolatry, the word is appears because it's kind of unclear where their hearts were at and where they were coming from. The proof if there is proof, was they turned in all of their gold earrings that they had left. Anything that would have been tied to idolatry, but was that repentance or was that just fear of God's judgment and fear of Moses? It's a little hard to say. Now, and also at the end of the previous chapter, we saw God testing Moses to demonstrate the quality of his leadership. Now, while he struggled at times, while he even failed at times, the fact is he met the primary characteristic of a godly leader, which was he was more concerned about God's honor and God's glory than he was concerned about his own position, his own frustrations, and the hassle of him having to lead a bunch of people who were being a real pain in the whatever. In this, and remember, he also becomes the mediator, because when God is ready to judge Israel... Then Moses comes up before the Lord and pleads for the nation. So in that sense, he is a type of Christ. We read in Exodus 32 32 and 33, But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out from my book. So Moses' basic statement was, Instead of taking them, take me. And that certainly qualifies him as a mediator, I would say. But see, the problem there is obvious. Only Christ was the one who could die for anybody else's sins rather than his own. Paul says in Romans 6.10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Moses was willing, and we see similar patterns down the line. Moses was willing, but Moses couldn't. So, finally, God arranged for the people to be led into the land by an angel. This was because, does anybody remember, why did God say he didn't want to leave them, be in their presence anymore? To
1: in the
0: yeah. They had fallen to the degree that he said, if I was amongst them, I would have to destroy them. So, I'm going to send an angel in front of them instead. And if they had truly repented at this point, then God wouldn't have had to say that, would he? So that tends to lead to the fact that this was more like, I'm sorry I got caught, (laughs) and trying to mitigate what the results of that were, rather than really truly repenting. I think we sometimes find ourselves in the same position, don't we? Where it's more like a little kid who uh, is caught and therefore doesn't want to take the punishment. I'm sorry. And of course, we live in a society that does that, right? I'm sorry. What they really mean is I'm sorry. We got caught, not I'm sorry for what I did. I think what happens is when we fall out of obedience to God, we fall into a sort of, for one of a better term, spiritual funk. We want to do our own thing. And what happens, that breaks off fellowship with God. Not relationship, but fellowship, until we're truly repentant. And so what's really happening, even though probably you wouldn't think of it in terms of fellowship per se, with Israel and God because of the nature of relationship, that was still what, what happened here, is that they were out of relationship with him. But like us, John says it in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I love the second half of this verse. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which means when we deal with what we know we've done, he takes care of everything, including the stuff we don't know we've done. And so the, the danger is, and this is what Israel hasn't figured out yet, is... When we sin, we give sin power over us. Whatever our struggle is, and everybody has their own struggle, and that will be the struggle we will have till they throw the dirt in the hole. But So maturity isn't the absence of the struggle. Maturity is recognizing the struggle and turning over the Lord to have victory in the struggle, right? And when we don't make that choice, then whatever that is gains power until we go back to the Lord and repent. It's like they say, with certain kinds of drug addictions, with health or whatever, you can stop using the drugs. But all you need to do it is once, and you're right back to where you were, fully addicted again. Well, fortunately, it doesn't have to be the case for us, but nevertheless, sin can have power over us unless we depend on the law. Paul talks about this in Romans six. 17 and 18, where it says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So remember the rule, in any given situation, in dependency on the Holy Spirit, we can choose to do the right thing. But the corollary is also true. If we don't depend on the Holy Spirit, which means if we don't go to God, we can choose to do the wrong thing. And so Israel's out there in the wilderness. God's saying, I'm I'm done. I'm not done leading you. I'm going to have an angel lead you for their sake. Right? He's saying, I'm going to do this for your sake because I'm not going to leave you alone, but I don't dare be in the midst of you because if you keep behaving the way you're behaving, I'm going to have to destroy you. So I'm stepping back as a sign of my mercy. Interesting way of looking at it, huh? So, we're picking up then in chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Electroclites, and go up into the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up with you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should come up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from of horror onward. And so it says they, they mourn because God wasn't going to lead them. That's not necessarily the same thing as repentance, is it? It's recognition that they don't want to be out there by themselves. And so, starting in verse 7, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, fire off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent at the meeting, which was outside the camp, And whenever Moses went to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent door. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This this is interesting. God says it's time to leave Sinai. What was Sinai? Sinai was the school, right? It was to prepare them for the trip. It was to prepare them for the relationship with God. School had not gone really well because they... Chosen to sin and to rebel. And so, God isn't letting the nation off the hook. And notice, I'm sure Moses appreciated this, he tends to refer to the people as Moses' people, the people you brought up out of Egypt. You know, your daughter today, you should have seen them with you. you know. When it's behaving, it's your kid. When not, it's the other person's kid. And so, I feel bad for Moses, because he's really kind of putting the pressure on Moses. But again, it's getting Moses to respond in effect, saying, No, I didn't bring them out of Egypt. You're the one that brought them out of Egypt, is what's going on in Moses' life. And I'm sure he's not a happy keeper at this point. And so, the good news is that God had intended to keep them going on to the promised land. But notice why. He says this. Because of promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, if it wasn't for promises I made to your forefathers, I'd just let you sink out here. Because you guys are a pain in the. And they're getting the message because what he tells them, Moses, you go tell them I consider them a stiff-necked people. seems to me we wouldn't be too anxious to hear negative comments about our behavior from God. And so they are starting to be really concerned. But not only is he going to move them into the land, but the land is going to be in move-in condition. Notice what he's saying is he will gradually move the people out as Israel moves in, meaning that will leave the land fertile, that will leave behind produce. So it's like they're moving into an already ready apartment. It's a gradual process. As they move in, the people in front of them are going to be removed one way or another. So God is still saying, hey, I'm looking out for your needs. It's like the father of an unrepentant child who is in the background still looking to protect that child, but not from the consequences of their sin, but with the expectation of them recognizing and repenting of that sin. And that's the sad news, is he's not going to make his presence visible. And he was leaving them on their own, so to speak. What he's trying to do is teach them the gravity of their sin. It's what you end up having, what good parenting does. It means not like some parents when your kid's in trouble at school, running in and telling them how wonderful their child is, and how dare they do anything to the poor little dear, and constantly protecting them from any consequence. It's allowing them to experience the consequences of their failure. I've said this on other occasions. Parenting is easy. I don't have kids. Kids only ask two questions: am I loved and can I get away with it? All parenting is is answering yes to the first and no to the
1: second. See, it's simple.
0: (laughs) 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 But the child that gets no to the first one and yes to the second one is in serious danger. No, you're not loved unless, yes, you can get away with it. Because the reason children act out is because they want to know what the boundaries are. Because the boundaries let them know they're loved. And the more they, the further out those boundaries are, the worse they will behave because they're trying to get the parent to say, stop, because that's how they feel protected and secure is in the stop, and therefore love is in the stop.
1: Yes? Isn't that what's most in the uh, inner cities why you have these gangs and stuff because uh, you, a lot of them are raised by single parent families who are probably not taking the full responsibility of raising the child and so the child looks elsewhere and they wind up being in a gang or something like that. Well, and sometimes it's not even that they're not taking
0: care of them as well as they should and sometimes they're not because they're a single parent in the inner city. They're working all the time to provide for their kids, and so the kids have no parenting. And yes, they find some place to fit in and be secure. One of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons we find churches that cater to those struggling with same-sex attraction is because it's some place where they can come together and feel part of a community and feel accepted, Because the church has rejected not just their sin, but has rejected them. And so they look for some place where they can feel like they belong and are cared for. Yes, it's exactly that. It's looking for boundaries and looking for love and looking for acceptance. And so Israel, God put the boundaries down and he's saying, hey, you violated the boundaries. He wants them to think about what they're doing. He's not rejecting them. But they need to feel consequences of their actions. He does the same thing with us. Hebrews talks about that God disciplines his children. It's the same thing. There are boundaries. There are consequences. And God, does. God by his very nature, can't allow his children to get away with it and escape those. The non-believer, that's fine. They're not relevant. They're going to do whatever they want. And they'll reap their own consequences just by violating God's natural law. And again, as we said earlier, God's saying, I won't, I'm going with you not as a I'm not going with you in my presence, not as a punishment, but as a protection. Because repentance and forgiveness were still needed. The people had not really repented. Paul says in Romans five, eight, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God loves all peoples. Right? And he provides for the salvation for all peoples. But that doesn't mean all peoples accept his gift of salvation. And even though there are those now within the church, some names which we would recognize that are starting to teach universalism, that eventually you'll get a second chance in eternity to turn to God on. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the gift of salvation is available to all, but we also know very clearly all aren't going to accept it. So the people comply with God's instructions. they take off all the emblems of their sin and God is re- and so they're being reminded of their sin. And God reminds us it's called godly sorrow, not guilt godly sorrow, which should cause us to repent and move closer to God, right? And he'll bring to attention that which we need to be aware of. But God doesn't want to leave them hanging out there, so what does he do? He makes a provision for fellowship. So now the nation is getting ready to move. There's no point in staying where they are anymore. And we run across this interesting little structure called the tent of the meeting, which some commentators apparently confused with the tabernacle we know it isn't for two for one primary reason where was the tabernacle once it's built located yeah in the middle of the camp where's the tent of meeting somewhere outside the camp now there's two possible reasons for the existence of this tent of meeting one the tabernacle hasn't been finished being put together yet uh, good possibility and may be part of it the other reason is, what did God say? He wasn't going to have his presence in the midst of the people. So he's going to meet with Moses outside the camp. And we know he's meeting, right? Because we see his physical manifestation as the pillar of fire, uh, smoke comes down during the day when Moses goes in to meet with him. So Moses speaks to God uh, at the tent of the meeting. The tabernacle, when it's finally set up, is set up the whole encampment. The grounds and everything are set up dead center in, the, in a camp because the tribes are aligned all outside a specific order around the tabernacle. And I think this is two things. One, Moses, they're getting ready to move, so Moses isn't going to be going up the mountain anymore to talk to God. Two, this is a way of reinforcing the fact that God is still talking to Moses, and so Moses is still leading under God's offices even if God doesn't make his presence visible in the center of the camp. Now, this is very public. Remember, when Moses goes up on the mountain, what are they seeing? They're seeing fire and thunder and lightning and stuff like that at the top of the mountain. But that's all they're seeing. Here, they're seeing Moses go into the tent. They're seeing the manifestation of God appear at the front of the tent. And so, and notice, they're all getting out. And standing in the door of their own tents, when Moses goes in, they see Moses go in, they all get up, they go to the door of their tent, they all stand there the whole time he's in there, worshiping God. Now this does seem to say there's an attitudinal change going on, doesn't it? And apparently you get the feeling they're standing there the whole time that Moses is in the tent. Doesn't say how long he is, but he's in there, and they're worshiping God the whole time. They know that Moses is God's man in a much more visible way maybe than they've ever seen it quite before. And so it's it becomes an encouragement. And notice how Moses describes this whole thing. He tells us that he would go and speak to the Lord who appears as the pillar of cloud and God would speak to him as a friend. And in other words, they're having conversation. This is not God beating up on Moses' particularly. This is then just talking about what's going on. It's a, it's a really interesting... In fact, we're told that God would speak to Moses face to face. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Anything we come up with is speculation, but it seems to me that it's a possibility that maybe the pre-incarnate Christ is there. Now, the language could be just being anthrop- anthrop- anthropomorphic, right? Uh, and so it, we know that God, that Shekinah is at the Shekinah, out, is outside the tent, right? It says the Shekinah comes down in front of the door of the tent. So the Shekinah, unlike later where it manifests itself over the ark, it actually inside the tabernacle, here it's manifesting itself in, in parking, so to speak, outside the door. So Moses is inside talking to God. God's the spirit, God could just be talking to him there, but the language face to face and just to me feels a little bit like a conversation like a friend that maybe he's actually talking to the pre-incarnate Christ. Much more visible manifestation. And so, this could be a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ, but the main point of the narrative is to really reinforce the quality of relationship that's going on here between Moses and God it's very unique. It's very public. And so hopefully this will breed a greater respect for Moses. Remember, what was the problem? Two things, respect for Moses, but recognition that he's serving God. Because the problem before it did what? The people became anxious because Moses wasn't around. They had endowed Moses almost as if he was God. When he doesn't appear, they turn away from God, right? They put all their hope in Moses. Now God is physically manifesting himself in a way that the people see the connection. So hopefully it breeds obedience, repentance, and they are worshiping. So it's hard to say exactly what's going on. God has said he wouldn't travel with them any longer. And Moses throws him on his mercy. Oh, and by the way, Joshua is present. Notice Joshua was waiting outside the tent whenever Moses was in there. Not only that, but when Moses wasn't in there, apparently Joshua was guarding the tent because you can imagine other people like the peaking So Joshua was standing guard on the tent when Moses wasn't in there. So Joshua has become Moses' eighth account. He's the appointed, anointed heir, so to speak. Right? And so it's not surprising that All this is going on because what happens, he's the one that will eventually lead the people. And so, by him being there, the people know he's there too. So the people are now starting to, in their own thinking, tie Joshua to Moses and by that linkage, tying him to God as well because he's at the 10th. For all believers, whether we're talking about Old Testament, Moses, Joshua, the nation, or us, the most important factor we have is being able to come into the presence of or to have access to God. That's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what about relationship and fellowship are, is having access to God. It's the most important thing we we have. Having said that, how do you think we're doing with it? Varies at times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What causes it to vary?
1: Ourselves. Okay. I mean, thank God, that's for sure. Our circumstances. Yeah. Things all around us. Mm hmm.
0: Seems to get a lot better when it's really ugly, huh? Wear out, you can polish up the knees in your pants when things are bad. And you can wear brand new pants and they'll look new for ages when things are going well. <laughs>
1: well I kind of have a tendency more to thank God for what is there. You know, I do ask his help, but I also thank him
0: for what what he has blessed us with. And that's what it's supposed to be. That's exactly right. Praise and worship. If we're praising and worshiping, and especially, by the way, in difficult times, then we're going to be a lot more reassured, a lot calmer. We're going to be experiencing that peace, aren't we? Because we're going to be aware of God's presence more. So I, I tell clients, clients that we and there's been studies on it, those who journal heal faster than those who don't, and the reason is is because they can go back and look and see how far they've come. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you don't feel like you've made that much progress because you can't tell. And it's the same thing, the more time we spend praising God and thanking Him for what He's done, the more aware we are of His actions in our life and that builds our sense of security and peace that comes from dependency on Him. That's why some people keep a prayer journal. Because they can see all the answers prayers and the blessings and whatever. So, those are very good things. So, yes, that's, that's part of it. That it's all tied to being in the presence of God. Hebrews 10 19 to 22 says therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtains that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of the faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water so we have access and everybody sort of names of the reasons, circumstances, where we're at ourselves, all these factors that go with how much we take advantage of that access, or not. But we're blessed to have it, and so we're called to be in prayer continually. And that's the kind of prayer, really, that we're talking about with Moses, with God, isn't it? It's talking to God as a friend. It's having conversations with God. It's... <laughs> a lot of people, since I mentioned that we've done that clip on Fiddler, talk about Tevia. Tevia has a running conversation with God. Yeah, content sometimes, but it's very real. Right? And it's a good model, not necessarily the content, but the style of just taking everything to God. Yeah. I'm not suggesting we need to break in the Psalm and say, if I were a rich man. Because mm-hmm. we know the answer to that when we'd be in big trouble. But the concept is really good, and so that's what Moses does. Not only is it Moses in constant communication with God at the tent of the meeting and conversing with him, but he talks about this himself in the terms of being in prayer with God. Listen to his prayer. Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know that whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I find found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, Well, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people?" Is it not in you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses really looked. Remember back in the day, oh, I, you, don't say, now here he is talking to God, right? And he is really finessing this thing because he says, if I what, and your people, he keeps trying his own name to them. So whenever God says something positive about him, he says, I and the people. And he keeps doing the linkage saying, God, if I found favor, you need to, to consider us all. And that's the test. God already knows what he's going to do. God knows he's going before. Him. God knows everything that's going to happen. The reason God does these things, the reason God asks questions, Cain, where's your brother, is not so that he gets answers. It's so that we think about and know what God is doing in our lives and wants from us. It's to wake us up to what God already knows. So what he's doing is he's really getting Moses to relink himself back to the people. Remember, when he comes down the mountain, legitimately so, he's furious. He breaks the tablets of the law. He rails on these people. And so he separates himself from them in the somewhat way that God does. And so what is he doing? By God sort of coming along the side of him and kind of taking his side in the discussion, what has he done? He's reduced the bitterness. He's reduced the anger. And he's put Moses into a position where Moses starts relinking himself with the people. And wanting God to lead all of them, the people and Himself, and doesn't want God to abandon them to some angel, right? And so what He's doing is He's helping Moses work through his righteous anger that turns into something less than righteous, and bringing him back to what a leader has to do. A leader can be frustrated, legitimately so, but that doesn't mean a leader can act against. His calling as a leader. And so God is working with Moses. What's interesting about this and shows you how far Moses got? Moses, in effect, is kind of in a debate with God, isn't he? He's trying to change God's thinking, not realizing that God's doing it on him. But he had you to know, be totally open with God. What does it mean to you to be totally, and I'm not I calling you to be totally open with us, but I'm saying, what does it mean to be totally open with God for you?
1: Well, confessing of sin mm-hmm. and uh, restoring your relationship to Him. Mm-hmm. And okay. And thinking of, on Him daily, you know, we just is even if you're just like having a conversation in your mind with Him, you know, just I'm thinking about certain things. Yeah, Okay. To, him to provide all of your needs from mm-hmm. financial level. yeah, with God knowing everything,
0: and we stand making like in front of Him
1: anyway. So mm-hmm. how can we not be open?
0: Yeah, and that's the interesting point. It's we hide from God. And we want to cover stuff up. We don't want him to know. We act like that's possible, and the reality is it's not. So why are we bothering to try to hide stuff? Mm-hmm except that we come onto that right out of the garden ram and Eve hide behind a tree figuring God won't see him. No, but yes, he already knows what's the downside. And I'll tell you what the downside is, which is what this conversation between Moses and God is about. It means we have to look at it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's the downside. <laughs> if we're, <laughs> yes, if we're totally open with God, that means we have to be totally open with we. And that's the part of what we don't like. We theoretically, theologically, we know he knows everything, but if we're careful, we
1: don't. We try to make ourselves look better to ourselves. Well, for me, it would be acknowledging that all good things about myself or any positive motivations or whatever actually comes from the Lord. But it really isn't me, it's influenced by like. I think for me, it's about just submitting to to the will of God, knowing He is all powerful, He is in control. Mm-hmm. But can I get my mind to say, Okay God, I, I rest. I rest in that, whether it's finances, kids, any relationship, mm-hmm. you know, God does, like you said, love us and care for us and mm-hmm. you know, He is in control. And so everything is for my good, whether I acknowledge it or not. You got it.
0: Yes. Yeah. me. Yes. Um,
1: no, I was just gonna say the same thing about just like submitting and you know, sort of surrender yeah. to all you know and let go. Just let go. And sometimes it's sometimes in situations so and makes you know, put the people in a place that uh you got nothing but God. Mm-hmm. And then they, you just have to yeah. put all the assurance in God's hands. You
0: know? Yeah. And let's face it, most of us at this point in our lives don't want to stand in front of a mirror naked. And uh, theologically, spiritually, we don't want to see ourselves that way either. I think as everybody's saying, what interferes most with our being open and honest with God is that first means we have to be open and honest with ourselves. Or ask God, and I am never going to ask God this one. You know, put a mirror in front of me and show me as I really am. That one I won't ask. I'm sorry. I'm not wanting. God is gracious. He rarely does that. But we do need to ask him to help us be more honest with ourselves and so that we can be open with him because he knows us better than we know us. We already wouldn't want people to see yes. us knowing us as we are. And we don't know ourselves completely as we are. And I thank God that we don't. But Moses at this point is showing that kind of openness and is willing to talk to God. He says, God, you give me the job. Therefore, we're gonna if we're gonna discuss it, we're gonna discuss it, and he does. And it's exciting to see him do that, because it's encouraging to us, because we have our own tense of meaning, don't we? We're in them, because God meets us right where we are. So, do you ever get mad at God? By the way. Why? Why what? Why get mad at it? Yes. What? What is? I that's, think that's, I, a, that's a that's a downfall on my part too. I think people say that, but I don't think it's necessarily true. When we're in the middle of grief and fear and whatever, to me, now if we stay stuck mad, at him, that that's a different issue. And I tell people, getting angry with God, I find as a statement of faith. It says you believe He's there and you believe He can do something about it. And when we're in the middle of grief over great loss, what's part of the grief process is anger. And God does, and I don't think God can handle it. And it's, you get angry at somebody you love and you care about when you're involved with them and things aren't going the way that you feel they should. Like I say, we don't want to get stuck there. But as an initial reaction, I don't think it's wrong. In fact, like I say, I think it can be a statement of faith. And so I think we need to be careful because I think what happens is when people are struggling in that situation and they share it. And suddenly climbs all over him saying, You're right. it's a sin to be angry with God. No, it's not. It would be a sin. Moses gets angry. What do you mean, my people? <laughs> which I think is a perfectly reasonable. And notice, and here's how we know it's okay. God doesn't really say anything to him about saying that. In fact, he comes alongside and helps him process through the anger and the frustration and the bitterness. Right? Paul said it, in your anger, sin not. Which means getting angry in and of itself isn't automatically sinful. It's what you do with it. It may be, depending on the cause, if I'm angry because you have the audacity not to make me feel the way I want to feel about myself, <laughs> then i got a problem, right? Yes?
1: I find that I'm angry with myself and not angry with the Lord. Okay. And I'm angry with, uh, and disappointed in certain types of choices or paths that I've taken throughout life. And therefore, you, you have to... Um, take responsibility, I guess, for the decisions that you make in life. Oh, absolutely. And it's, obviously, it's not God's fault. It's
0: our own imperfections. Yes, and then we're talking about circumstances that, in effect, are consequences of our own choices. All right. I'm not necessarily talking about those. Because there are other situations we find ourselves in that are from living in a fallen world that are not a product of our own choices. Okay. Yeah. I look at it as um, as stated, um, his ways are so much higher than others. Oh I yeah, think. absolutely. Like I said, it's a statement of faith. It's saying, God, I know you could have stepped in and saved this person's life, for example. Yeah. Like I said, don't stay stuck there. But in and of itself, it's not wrong, necessarily wrong. It just depends on what we're angry about and why. Yes?
1: Yes my anger at god was actually one of my first impressions that i did still have faith in him because it was pointed out to me that that what exactly what jeff just said it means that i had faith that he could have stopped it or could have prevented Mm -hmm. and once i realized that i thought oh oh, oh, okay (laughs) and also knowing that he could take it that he wasn't going to push me away and that i could be completely open with god Rail against the horrible things, and then move past it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, not staying stuck there is
0: the key. Yes. <laughs> and by the way, why do you think atheists and others are so angry about people's faith? Yeah. Because at some core level, I think they know it's true. If they really didn't think God was up there and just figured you were disillusioned, why would they care? Yeah. True. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, people are just nuts. Who cares? They're so angry because at their core. And now he's
1: real yes that happened in the movie God's not dead I don't know how many of you have seen that but it's uh, where a philosophy professor a student Christian student um, actually like do a law case for the class in the class is the jury and at the end the way the young man wins the case with the students is he turns to the philosophy professor and says why, If you don't believe in God, why are you angry at Him? The students all begin to stand up and say, God's not dead, and, and the whole class stood up.
0: Well, and it was interesting, my cousin was a good example, and I've seen this, and you've all seen this, right? Somebody who purports not to believe in God, doesn't care, not involved, until something really goes wrong, and what do they say "Then Why did God do this to me? Excuse me? What's wrong with this picture?
1: Or will you pray for me? Yes, yeah, that's the
0: other, yeah. And we all know that the greatest believers in God are insurance companies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, their
0: view of God is pretty messed up, right? But they believe in him desperately because they're using him as an excuse not to pay all the time. Oh. So,
1: because
0: <laughs> it's an act of God. Let him pay. So, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to get back to where it was because I have no idea how much he's got here. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, we're talking about, oh, yeah, we were asking, do you get mad at God? So I think we need to reconsider the implications of that. It's not always negative. So getting back to Moses' prayer, see, I think there's some confusion on his part. And that is, okay, God says he's going to sort of just leave an angel, and he's going to sort of step out of this. And Moses is wondering, well, then just what are my responsibilities? He feels like, okay, God, do I need a new job description or something? He's feeling really insecure. He's been given the responsibility to lead the people in the Canaan. That was his responsibility from square one, right? But implicit in that was, okay, and I'm going to be with you when you do it. Now, he's still being told your job is to lead the people in the Canaan, but God said, oh, and by the way, I'm not going to hang with you at the time. And Moses said, no, wait a minute. Well, we, you can't rewrite the job description when we're in the middle of the job. So, I don't know who this angel is, but I'd rather it be all the same to you. I'd rather it be you. leading us. seems reasonable. And the next point Moses makes is, okay, God is saying he honors him by saying he knew him. God's talking about him like a friend. They're chatting. But Moses wants him to move over and to acknowledge the people as his people, not Moses'. They have no on it. If they were God's, I suspect Moses didn't want to have anything to do with them. Why am I stuck with them? What do you mean, what did my son do today? Wait, weren't you with him? How did he suddenly get to be my son? You know, I thought he was our son. Actually, he was misbehaving. I thought he was your son. Oh, and so Moses is saying, hey, this isn't uh, working really well. See, he wants to know and to, uh, know God to serve God. This is... His prayer here is wonderful because he says, if I'm going to serve you, I need to know more about you. I need to know you better. If I'm going to be your instrument, which is what we're all supposed to be, right? Then I need to know you better. And this is an ongoing process. You know, you may be as young as Ed or as old as me, but it's an ongoing process. We have to keep getting to know him better. And that's what we're going to spend eternity doing, is getting to know him better. Fortunately, we won't have to lead it, do any serving. of have to be worshiping at that point. But the fact is, we get all eternity, and we're never going to know everything there's to know about him. Because he will always be infinite, and we will always be finite. And so we get a whole eternity to get to know him better. And so, Moses saying, if I'm going to take this job on, I need to know who you are. I need to grow my understanding of you. That's a little bit like what Solomon said, right? Isn't it? I want wisdom, and godly wisdom is knowing God. And by the way, and I don't blame you for this one, he wanted to know God better. He didn't care so much about knowing the people better. He probably already knew more about them than he wanted to know. If I'm going to lead these people, I need to know you better. And so, after all, serving them was getting to be a real drag. So, but he wanted God to acknowledge the relationship between God and the people as well, yes.
1: This also be like a test because if you read further on in the numbers, you have that little fiasco with Korah. And, you know, they're, they're like, who are you to tell us what to do? You mm-hmm. know, and they forget real quick that God sent him to lead, oh, yeah. to do his part of leading the people, and so, you know, then they have to suffer another consequence because they didn't get the clue.
0: Yeah, well, and, and it seems like we miss a lot of clues. That's what have you done for us in the last two and a half minutes. That's the human condition. Hey, until we get it right, we can't be hard on them. Okay. As I always say, we've got the indwelling Holy Spirit. What's our excuse? Yeah, So, he wants to know God better, but he wants God, to, and he's, and it's so clear in the prayer, I am the nation. He keeps doing this. He wants God to say the same things about the nation that he's saying about Moses, that he's going to lead the whole Medilla. Moses does not want to be out there by himself with just him and some angel he's never met. So, We've been looking at the relationship between Moses and God. It's unique. There's only some similar, the only similar relations that we sort of see with this kind of communication was God and Adam before the fall, when God walked with Adam in the garden. Abraham is also described as a friend of God. And of course, we see the, the relationship between God and Christ when he's on earth. See, included in this relationship is a provision for fellowship. That's Moses at the 10th of the meeting. And that's the basis of any true friendship. It's fellowship. It's communication. It's Moses meeting with God face to face. There's transparency as part of this. God knows all there is to know about Moses. Knows about us. But he makes himself known to Moses. And Moses desires to know him better. He'll He'll make himself known to us as much as we want to know, he'll make us known, make himself known to us. We just have to be wanting it. And Moses wasn't afraid to tell God, and this gets back to that anger kind of stuff. Moses wasn't afraid to tell God what he was thinking. He did not like the idea of God leaving him out there hanging when God's the one that brought him out there to lead the people. And that's okay. Friendship means being able to say what you're feeling. And how somebody feels is how somebody feels. So, getting back to the prayer, he prays for growth in his relationship with God. He recognizes his total dependency on God. Boy, is that the place for a leader to be. This is why we have so much problem in so, in so many churches, is the upfront person forgets his total dependency on God and thinks about it being his church as opposed to it being God's church. And then you're in serious trouble. When are we in trouble? When we try to do it out of our own strength. Messes up every time, doesn't it? And if we don't know it, messes up. We'll find out leader did. And Moses, again, as the sign of a good leader, prays for the people's relationship or fellowship with God, relationship with God. He says, he'll continue. And then what is God saying? I will travel with them. Has God changed his mind? No, because this was all about bringing Moses in line with what he needed to know and seeing the people repentance. God doesn't change his mind. Scripture talks about that sometimes, but what does happens is God changes his actions in response to repentance and godly people's actions. Okay? He says, it's like setting boundaries with your kids. Here's the consequence if you do this. And you're going to do it. But the kid hears you doesn't do it, you don't have to act. Have you changed your mind? No. The behavior's changed. And that's what's happening here. So, um, Moses gets to serve an example for Israel. Well, as you're pointing out, he can be a flawed one down the line. But every leader is. Christ isn't, but everybody else is. So Moses wants to make sure God is coming. He says, why bother leaving the mount? I don't even want to move. I don't want to pack up. I don't want to do anything. I'm just going to sit here if you're not leading because it's going to be even a bigger mess than it already is. So there. And God says, you're right. And that's what you needed to figure out. So let's go. If we refuse to take a step without God's leading, we're going to get in a whole lot less trouble. And Moses got that clearly. So in response to Moses' prayer, God says he will continue to lead the nation. And it was, why? Because Moses demonstrated his dependency on God. And most of the time it flows downhill, right? If the leadership is being who it's supposed to be in dependency on God, it becomes a testimony for the people. And the people are more inclined. The operator more, board more inclined because they continue to get in trouble. And he asked one last, this is one of those weird passages. He asked God for a visible sign of God's glory. We don't know what this means. God says, okay, nobody can look at me without dying. So I will show you. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll cover you as my glory goes by. And I'll lift my hand and I'll let you see me from the back as I'm going. I don't know what that means. Nobody knows what that means. Somehow or other, God manifested himself to Moses. That's all we need. And the important thing I think we take from that is God knew Moses legitimately needed it. Moses wasn't just asking for something because it was cool or He needed that reassurance of God, and how do we know? Because God gave him the reassurance. When we legitimately need to be reassured by God's definition, he will reassure us. It doesn't matter whether you think I should be or whether you think I'm asking for something dumb. If God gives it to me, then God is saying, yes, I it's something I actually need. And he knows and will give us what we need to depend on him when we need it as he sees we need it. And when we're asking sincerely because we're trusting in him. And, that's, and so whatever happens here, he gives Moses... What he asks for. Now, we do have the opportunity to see God. That's the good news. After all, we read in John 14, 8 through 10. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe I am in, in the Father, and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. God let the incarnation, among many things that that provided, provided us the opportunity to see. When it says no man shall look upon God, it's talking about God the Father and the Spirit. Because people do look upon God in the Old Testament. Who? The pre-incarnate Christ. So, and, who, and some say in heaven we'll never be able to look on the glory of God the Father. I don't know. We'll certainly see Christ in heaven. We know that God has always be infinite. We will always be finite. And if some return the passage, no man may look on God living, which means once we've died, we can look on. I I don't know. We'll I don't. Find out. We'll find. Yes. <laughs> It's like pan millennialism will all pan out. We don't know, but we'll not find out when we want. Bush notes as a sort of an aside. This is kind of similar to um, the one described by Elijah when he sees the presence of God, and of course it's a Mount of Transfiguration when when Moses and Elijah get to see the transfigured Christ and the disciples too. So, God is saying, hey, if you're going to be in fellowship with me, you need to be obedient. Go back, and so Moses, of course, is going to, God writes the backup copy of the Ten Commandments in his own hand again. Moses brings them down the mountain from God, and the people are again given the law. And God says, hey, fellowship is dependent on obedience, and that is nothing new because that's still true for us. We're not under the law, but we are to be obedient to God and our fellowship is dependent on our obedience. And when we sin, we create fellowship. Nothing's changed from that standpoint. What is our call, though? Love God, love others. That's the commandments. Much easier to obey when it's based on love than when it's based on we're going to you." See, God is just and merciful. Moses broke the law, commandments, tablets of the commandments so that the people would not be judged under them. He brings in the new ones, and he's prepared to forgive the nation God is if the nation is truly repentant. That's all it takes is repentance and dependency on him. And then we find that one other verse that has been phenomenally misused by people. And that's verse 34, starting in 34:6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I tried to find a picture for this. And I thought all these things on removing the generational curse. I oh yes, everybody you've heard that kind of teaching. Whereas you're walking along minding your own business, but you've got the curse of sin on you from your great great grandfather, and it's that's not what this is saying. What it's saying is that people haven't repented and haven't turned back to the Lord, by the third or fourth generation, they are so locked into their sin and away from God, that short of a the miracle, they will not turn back to Him. It doesn't mean I'm responsible for the sins of my grandfather four times removed. That's ridiculous. The whole premise of Scripture is we're responsible for our own sin.
1: The only, one, the only curse of sin is the mm-hmm. one from Adam. Yes. Pretty good. Uh, I'm reading even uh, in Joshua or in the Judges, when Joshua died, you know, the generation that knew Joshua, they were worshiping the Lord, but the succeeding generations mm-hmm. began to get worse and worse mm-hmm. and worse.
0: Unchecked sin becomes what? It becomes unchecked worse and worse, right? right. So
1: we see but I guarantee
0: you, God is not holding me responsible for what my great-grandfather great great did. That's But there is whole schools of theology that have taught generational curses and freedom from generational curses based on misusing this one verse. That's what happens when you build theology up with one verse. And so the response of Moses of all of this is worshiping God and what? Recognition of man's condition and his fallenness. And the need to be dependent on him. And so God makes his Forgiveness known by reinstating the covenantal relationship, reminding the people that he will lead them, that he's forgiven them, and a whole extended section that we'll look at next time. And that will be it. So we have a tendency to learn what we least like about our parents. You know, everybody says, like, I will never do what my father did or my mother did. And then you hear it coming out of your mouth. Why? Because we give the most attention to what we like the least. So therefore we learn that. What we like the best we tend to ignore. And in that sense, we pass on a generational curse and you hear it coming out of your mouth, and I was never going to treat my kids that way, and I'm doing exactly the right. Okay? That's because that's how we learn to parent. And if we don't do something about it, it does become ingrained and gets passed on and passed on, just because that's the way we function. We see this in a dramatic way with newborn babies who are addicted to drugs because their mothers were. Or, this isn't sin so much, and this is not so much today, but in the past there were women who took DES to help them with their pregnancy, with nausea, and stuff like that. This was back in the 50s. And their do- primarily, their daughters were born with all kinds of uterine problems that made it very difficult for them to have children as a result of the drugs their mothers took, OK? Uh, and Like I say, so we pass on things that aren't necessarily even sin, per se. We're still fighting battles in the Middle East, because Abraham listened to uh, Sarah and messed around with Hagar. Mm-hmm. Talk about assing on problems. Okay. The principle is here, is we should live a life that isn't going to cause our descendants to regret our choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the second one, which was you mentioned earlier, is that we're responsible for our own sins. I deal with this all the time mm-hmm. in counseling. <laughs> yes, what you were a victim of what was done to you. Absolutely no question about it. What was done to you was evil. How you deal with it, though, is your choice and can be sinful or not sinful. Because God doesn't do what some courts do and say, oh, well, you're just a product of your society. It's not your fault. Yeah, it is. You're a product of your society, yes. And it's your fault. What you do with that. That's what he's saying. They were a product of idolatry in Egypt, weren't they? But they were responsible for what they did with it. God took them into consideration. All he was doing was to try to help them, taking all of that into consideration. He knew and was setting up things to protect them from that. So he's saying, you're a victim. I understand you're a victim here. If you do this, it'll help you overcome your victimness. Hmm. But if you don't, that's your problem. I'm doing all I can. You put them all into therapy, but I don't worship. You know. They belong to... I a Idol, Idols anonymous and it, you know they had to but they were responsible. And finally, last point, we need to remember how truly blessed we are to have constant access to God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who turn after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will pour out on, or take their names from my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You will hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forever.